Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we know from your word that you you know us in, in our inner being. You know God ourselves better than we know ourselves. We think we understand our, our hearts and our thoughts and even the motives of our hearts. But God, oftentimes we are surprised as you reveal these things uh, to us. We pray this morning that we might stand before your word as a mirror. God, that you would show us uh, not only the condition of our, of our lives and, and our hearts, uh, but Lord, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would turn us ever more to you, to love you more. God, to, to seek to glorify you and to praise you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why God thought it was not only necessary, but good for his people to gather on the first day of the week to worship him? And and even more specifically than that, to include in that worship the reading and the preaching of the word of God. Now, for those of you who have grown up in the church and maybe for you kids, you just think, well, Pastor Rick, that's just the way it is. That's just what churches do. But in our media-saturated culture, I think it looks at preaching and at the printed word as outdated at best and uh, most likely is useless and a waste of time. And unfortunately, many churches have sort of adopted that, that kind of thinking. And so Bible reading and, and uh, is disappearing and, and preaching is being replaced with more up-to-date forms of communication and so expository preaching has given way to things like video clips and short motivational talks and inspirational moments and maybe even slide presentations and things like that in, in a number of churches. But compare the prevailing, that prevailing wisdom with what God says in his word about what is good and necessary for his people. And last week, we saw that God's people were to no longer live as those who don't believe in God. That before we came to faith in Christ, we thought a certain way that was contrary to God. But we no longer live as those who are in bondage to their sin. As he talked about those who are in the futility of their thinking. But instead, we have been given a new heart, a new life, a new self, as as, uh, Paul talks about it. We had our old self, now we've been given a new self. And we can live like God in righteousness and and holiness. And so we saw last week, and I sort of just want to repeat this a little bit as my first point this morning, that really Paul exhorts us to to live in Christ. And we see that in verse uh, 23. I mean, anyone who is a Christian uh, has had their life changed. They understand that whole thing of the old self and, and the new self. But that same person also will attest to the reality that they are constantly being tempted to speak and to think and to act like the world does. And so, no wonder Paul says in verse 23 that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Even though we have been made new creatures in Christ, we need to be made new again. And as we talked about last week, this is something that is a continuous action. This is something that happens daily, that happens constantly. Because the insinuation is is that in the Christian life, there's a a, a departure from that new self. And we need to be brought back to that each and every day. And uh, so this action 
is something that we need in our lives. But what's really interesting is you look at the Greek, it's not an action that we actually create. We don't renew ourselves. That renewing happens to us. And we know that it happens specifically from the Holy Spirit. And it needs to happen in the spirit of our minds. Now, there's a lot of discussion what that expression means. And if you want to spend a lot of time this afternoon, you can get some commentaries down and you can read through all the different discussions. Some think that it might be talking about the Holy Spirit that is resident in the minds of the believer. But there's not any other place in Scripture really that refers to the Holy Spirit in this way. And neither is Paul simply referring to having our minds enlightened with the knowledge or the light of truth because it talks about the spirit of the mind, not just about the mind itself. And so the spirit of the mind has to do with the Holy Spirit transforming the mind, yes, with the knowledge and the light of truth, that is part of it, but really by changing what really governs and controls and operates the mind. In other words, there's more than a, just of a change of mind. There's a change of the will. There's a change of who we are morally as, as well. And, and of course, we know from Romans 12 and Psalm 19, verse 7, that the word of God is that which revives our soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, David said, reviving the soul. And so this renewal of our thinking and our will is necessary every day to put off the old self and to put on that, that new self. And, and if God's people do not avail themselves of the word, not only on Sunday mornings, and that's why the word is so important to be read and to pre- preached on Sunday morning and what many churches are missing out. They're seeking to try to sway people by their own methods. We sort of talked about that in Sunday school, that God wants us to do things his way, that he has a design for that. But it's necessary not only that we do it on Sunday mornings, but we do it daily and that we we do it. And I want to encourage you, those of you that are heads of your household, that it's really important to have family worship. I know it's hard and it's not like it's the, you know, the, the pinnacle of, you know, spiritual maturity. But it is a good and a necessary thing. And I know in our household, oftentimes we found that there were times where our kids sort of went through periods of just really not acting godly. Let's just put it that way. They were just sort of little brats, you know, and it was difficult times. But what we found was those times when we had consistent family worship, implying that we didn't always have consistent family worship. But those times when we did have consistent family worship, we saw sort of a calming effect that happened upon our kids, that the word of God was actually reaching them and uh, was working on their hearts. And so I just want to encourage you that we need that. But, but as we spend time reading and prayerfully meditating on the word of God, not just checking off a box, but opening the word and really reading it and really meditating on it, then we see, as, as James talks about, it's like looking at a mirror. You know, it, the word shows us what is in our hearts. You see, we oftentimes deceive ourselves by looking around at people around us. And you might look at the person that's sitting beside you or across the, the sanctuary, and you think, well, I'm better than that person, I know. That person there, yeah, I could probably be more like them. And we sort of compare ourselves with each other, and we walk away with a skewed view of who we really are. Because we oftentimes think that we're better because we compare. And we have a tendency to want to compare ourselves with those that maybe aren't quite as mature as what we are. And so we feel really good about ourselves. But as we open the word of God, he shows us truly our hearts. 
And not just our actions and the things that we say, but this even gets into looking at the motives of our heart and shows us who we are. But also as we read God's word and we take time to meditate upon it, it instructs us as to how we are to live, not in our own ways, but in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit that is at work in our hearts. And so there is that renewal, that there is that sense of bringing us back to, to where we need to be. And, and even not only just showing us to add that knowledge to our head so we know the truth, but actually leading us to actions, actually causing us to repent, actually seeing a change in the way that we live and the things that we say and the, the thoughts that we have. You see, I think we're oftentimes comfortable with God's word as long as it isn't presented in high and lofty speech. You know, it's sort of nice to have God's word out there. And we can even love the truth. And I think this is a danger, especially in reform circles. We can love the truth more than we can love Jesus. And I would even say this, we can love the truth and be unregenerate and not know Jesus. But God calls us to not only know the truth, but to know him and to see the work that he is doing in our hearts. And so this is the, we see this renewing in the mind. We see the spirit of God working in our hearts. And as they would say down south, you done stop preaching, preacher, and you done start meddling. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. He begins to meddle and he begins to show us uh, not only what we need to know, the truth, but how we need to live according to that truth. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like a TV show I was watching recently. One of the main characters was injected with a drug against his own will, but he was injected with a drug that altered his, his mindset. And so he, he acted differently, he thought differently, he, he spoke differently, and it really wreaked havoc in his life. But eventually a doctor was able to get a hold of him and help him to get off that drug, and, uh, and he was doing much better. And the doctor at the end of the show said, so how are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm doing great. He said, but I'll tell you this. He said, when I was on that drug... I could have swore that the way that I was thinking was the right way of thinking, even though it wasn't. He said, I was totally convinced that I was right in everything that I was doing, even though it was the wrong way of thinking. And he goes, but I can see that now. And that's oftentimes how we as Christians can be sometimes. When we, we don't have that time where, we, where there is the, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because of the word of God, we can think that we're thinking so clearly, and we don't understand how skewed our thinking can be. But as we avail ourselves of the daily work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, by God's grace, we see and act and desire those things that are in keeping with the likeness of God. So he exhorts us to live in Christ. But then the, the bulk of this passage in verses 25 through 32, Paul really gives us examples of what it means to live in Christ. Paul, I want you to understand, is not a legalist, okay? These things that we see in verses 32 or 25 through 32 are not just a list of do's and don'ts that we need to somehow uh, make a reality in our lives. In other words, I don't want you guys to go home and say, well, Pastor Rick said I need to do better about these things. I've been failing, so I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I need to do better. What I want you to understand is that these are examples of what it means to live in Christ. As we put off the old man, as we put on the new man, and we live in that renewed state, Paul instruction teaches us how the grace of God renews us and stimulates us to personal holiness. 
And this is what that holiness looks like. Now, I say that because I think sometimes when we think about uh, holiness, we don't necessarily think of it the way that Paul thinks about it. You know, all these things that he's giving in verses 25 through 32 are uh, speak of how we live in relationship to one another. How we live in community, if you want to use the, the more hip term, you know, that uh, this is how we live with one another. And, and uh, often when we think of holiness, we think of it in mystical terms. Holiness is when I go and I sit by myself in a quiet place and I meditate. You know, I might think about God's word and I might pray to God and, and that's holiness. But that's not what the Bible talks about holiness as. Biblical holiness happens in the midst of relationships with other people. Biblical holiness is living as Jesus did in the midst of everyday life. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. And so the person who is renewed by the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in his life will speak, think, and act as a renewed person. And that's what I want us to see. He speaks, thinks, and acts as a renewed person. First of all, speaking as a renewed person. Look at verse 25. Paul tells us to speak the truth, not lies. Therefore, having put away falsehood, or that can be translated lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that as Christians we live by the truth because we come to faith in Christ by rejecting Satan and his ways. Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, said in John chapter 8, verse 44, You are the father, you, excuse me, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, talking about Satan or the devil, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. And so Satan lies about God and Christ and about life and death and heaven and hell and what's good and, and what's not good. And so a child of Satan will do the same. And that's why Paul says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, he says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now you say, now wait a minute, Pastor Rick. You know, any Christian can fall into any sin, including lying. But if a person's life is a habitual flow of lies that proceeds from a heart that seeks to deceive others, then there's no biblical basis for that person to call themselves a Christian, the person who continually lies as a regular part of their daily living shows themselves to be a child of Satan and not a child of God. And so, kids, you wonder why your parents sometimes get so upset and they come down so hard on you when they hear you begin to lie. Not just tell one lie, not just to tell two lies, but they begin to catch you in lie after lie after lie after lie. Because for them, they can see that and they can say, this is dangerous territory. My kids are walking not as God's child, but as Satan's child. And so kids, listen to your parents. They are seeking to warn you from a great danger and give your heart to the things that they tell you. I mean, I know that the world that we live in 
is, is full of lies. I mean, we see it in so many different forms. I mean, you see it in plagiarism. Um, you see it uh, as we seek nowadays to portray ourselves as someone that we're really not. You know, today it's not about work ethic in the workplace. It's really about image. You know, what kind of image can you portray of yourself? And how can you get people to, to think about you? But oftentimes people have to lie to do that. They have to sort of sell themselves, I guess is how, what we uh, convey it as. Uh, sometimes we portray others in a worse light than they really are, just so that other people will think more highly of us. And so we see what we see at the end of this passage, where there's slander and there's malice and there's bitterness towards one another. Uh, we oftentimes misrepresent facts, whether it be on our tax returns or expense report, maybe in our business dealings. It might be in a ticket that we got for, for speeding or something. And so we sort of spin the circumstances to make it seem like, well, we shouldn't have got this ticket. Kids, it might be curfews that your parents give you. And then you try to spin the circumstances to try to justify why you're late for curfew. You know, whatever it might be, we oftentimes will spin the facts you see, in lying, we take advantage of others and we try to build our own reality. Um, the pressure to, to gain advantage over others, while at the same time avoiding the consequences of our own actions, will always tempt us to lie. And sometimes even in the Christian community, we want others to think well of us, so we stretch the truth and we tell little white lies. And we know that we often fall short of the way that we're supposed to live and, and we don't want to, to feel the consequences of that. And so what do we do? We, we lie. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't merely say here, don't tell lies. Instead, what does he say? Speak the truth. You know, when we speak the truth, there's no place even for little white lies. Don't, don't you like that when people do that? Well, okay, so what I said wasn't completely true. It was just a little white lie little white lie but even the smallest of lies is meant to deceive and what Paul says he didn't say don't lie so you can't like stretch it by saying well it's only a little white lie instead he says tell the truth and in telling the truth we're always bringing to light the fullness of what really is happening and when we speak the truth we are not simply are we not just simply reflecting the character of who God is I mean, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If we have come to embrace Jesus, then how can we go online and being deceptive? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Richard Brooks stood in this pulpit and he preached on John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul reminds us that we are a new creation. We have put off the lie of falsehood of the world and we've been set free to speak the truth. And even when we look bad because the truth is less than flattering towards us, God has granted us the ability, instead of trying to hide that sin, to just be honest and confess it. I say, you're right. What I did was wrong. I didn't measure up. But not only is there that freedom to confess our sins, we don't have to hide that anymore because there is forgiveness of sins. Because uh, 
we can know that, that we can be forgiven by God and by others that we might have offended. And so we must actively cultivate the truth in every aspect of our lives. But why? Well, one, because God doesn't lie. But two, he says in verse 25, for we are all members of one another. Because we're a body, there needs to be that trust. A, a, a trust is the foundation of, of truth. And if we are to be part of the body of Christ and be more like Jesus, then we must be a people who speak the truth. If we don't speak the truth to one another, we cannot function as the body. He says in verse 29, though, that we must not only speak the truth, but we must speak words that build others up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech has to be more than just truthful. It has to be that which will encourage and build one another up. We know that to control our tongues is exceedingly difficult. In James chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, James gives a great explanation of that. But in that he says, no human being can tame the tongue. And the reason why we can't tame our tongues and control our tongues is because it flows out, comes out of the overflow of our heart. Matthew says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And, and, and you and I cannot control our heart. Only the Holy Spirit has the ability to change a person's heart. By the way, this is a freebie. You want to know what kind of person someone is? Listen to their words. Parents, you want to know what's going on and what kind of a kid your kids are? Listen to the words. Listen to the things they say. Listen to the way they say it. And it'll be a window into their heart to see what is going on in the heart. So speech is a gift from God, and speech is one of the ways that we're made in the image of God. And so our talk must not be corrupt. This is more than avoiding saying four-letter words. Actually, the word corrupt is the idea of being rotten or decaying. Have you ever walked into the kitchen? I'm sure you guys have never done this, but have you ever walked into the kitchen and there's rotten fruit? I mean, you know that because you can smell it immediately. You look on the counter and there's what looked like it used to be some kind of form of fruit, but now it's just sort of this shriveled old nasty stuff and there's gnats all around it. But not only is it corrupted, but it corrupts those things around it. You know, the counter is now slimy and nasty and whatever. Uh, the smell is sort of awful and you're like, okay, guys, oh, let's stay out of the kitchen. Let me get this cleaned up. And, and we, we seek to clean it up. And that's oftentimes what our words can do with others. It not only corrupts us, but it can corrupt those that are around us. And we live in a culture that's like that. I mean, even in our entertainment, it's hard to watch a TV show or a movie without there being some kind of not only swearing, but just people putting other people down and, and exalting themselves. As a matter of fact, sitcom comedies, that seems to be the theme. The more you can put somebody else down and exalt yourself, the better the TV show seems to be. That's just the way that we are. And not only that, but we live in a culture that has a tendency to feel the freedom to say whatever you want to say to others simply by rationalizing that what you're saying is true. We think that that's like the greatest virtue is to say what's true. And so we are blunt in our conversation. We are rude. Our words lack the patience towards others. We take pride in you know, saying it as it is without considering how our words will affect others. But Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We are to seek opportunity to build others up. 
And sometimes that comes through words of encouragement. Sometimes it comes through practical advice. Sometimes it comes through somebody just saying, hey, hang in there, press on, you can do it. Sometimes it comes um, as we come alongside someone in their struggle with sin and we speak the words of truth. I mean, think about what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression that is in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. In other words, take the time to enter into the messiness of somebody else's sin in life and, and not fix them, but carry their burden. Help them through the midst of that. Take time out of your life to do that. And of course, the goal of our words is that those who hear it are given grace. It reminds me of Proverbs 25:11 that says, "A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver." You know, just the right word at just the right time is like that. It's like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And God uses the words we speak to minister grace to others. And all of us need grace every day. And God uses the words of our brothers and sisters to build us up. But it's not only as we are renewed does it change our speech, but also our thinking as well. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So now this time Paul starts with the positive and what it means to put on Christ. And he's really quoting from Psalm 4.4. 4. And, and there is an insinuation here that there is a proper Christian anger. Be angry and do not sin. Now, what kind of sin or what kind of anger is good? Well, Christians are to be angry with sin or to be angry with injustices that are done in the world. We can be angry with our own inability to be like Christ. But Paul knows that even the most righteous anger can easily turn into bitterness and resentment and self-righteousness. And so he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I just want to say this. Um, this is really for all of us. But, uh, you know, probably Dan and Hannah will be, uh, uh, be the ones that most this might seem to apply to. It seems like every young couple, every minister stands up before them and says, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So that what that means is you don't go to bed mad. That's what that verse means. And so as a young couple, you stay up late. And the later you stay up, the more tired you get. And the conversation just goes downhill from there. And you hurt each other more. And you're just thinking, really? This is really supposed to help? And you just don't understand. Well, I, I think that the problem with that is not that the, there's a problem with God's word. There's a problem with our understanding of God's word. That's not what the Bible is saying. It's not saying don't go to bed. It's not saying do not let the sun go down on your disagreement. It says rather don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's okay. It's okay if we're having a conversation with one another uh, as couples and it's late at night and we don't agree to say, you know what? Let's maybe we should just stop and go to bed and get some sleep. Now, you do need to check your heart and make sure you're not angry with your spouse. That's true. But you can let it go and you can get up in the morning and then you can have that conversation. And then I know my wife and I, this is sort of embarrassing, but we've done that before. Got up in the morning 
And the argument just didn't seem as uh, important as it was the night before when we were really tired. As a matter of fact, one time in particular, I remember we had an argument with one another. And I said, well, sweetheart, let me just tell you, this is what I was trying to say. And she said, well, that's what I was trying to say. But we were arguing it from two different ways. And so we thought we were disagreeing with each other. How ridiculous can it be? Anyway, okay, so... But what Paul is saying here is he's really trying to give us boundaries here when he says, and don't sin, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, Because he doesn't want us to use these verses as an excuse to be unnecessarily angry in a sinful way or to harbor anger beyond an appropriate amount of time. You see, I think for all of us, uh, of all the major sins, anger can sometimes be the most enjoyable because there's something about nourishing the thought that we're right and somebody else is wrong, right? That, you know, we're, we're, we're going to show them that we're not, you know, we're going to stand on our rights, that no one's going to, to, to push us around and that we're entitled to be angry oftentimes, we think. But the focus of such thinking is not God in his glory, but in promoting ourselves and our own thoughts. And, and such anger leads to other sins like slander and hate and bitterness as we read here in verse 32. And that's why James tells us to be slow to anger. Now, why is Paul so concerned about how and how long our anger expresses in our hearts? Well, he says because he doesn't want the devil to gain a foothold. You've got to understand that God's grace is behind this verse, brothers and sisters. Uh, Archimedes said... Give me a lover long enough with a place to stand and I can move the world. And Paul is saying to allow anger to simmer, the kind of anger that actually uh, desires the suffering of others and seeks to promote ourselves, gives Satan a foothold in our hearts from which he can begin to control our world. We don't understand it. We become very angry with others and we begin to complain and, and gripe against them. and We don't understand that actually we are being controlled. And that Satan is controlling our hearts. And so even righteous anger can spoil us and can spoil our testimony if left unchecked for too long. You know, it's been said that anger, and brothers and sisters, this is important, listen to this, that anger is an acid that destroys the container. That anger is an acid that destroys the container. I don't care whether it's outrage, anger, whether it's sort of a quiet simmer that happens under the surface, either one will begin to destroy us. And so Paul graciously lifts our head above our own pain so that we can see the consequences of the thought patterns that give Satan the foothold for his corrosive work in our hearts. And so when we find ourselves in those positions where we are disagreeing with each other and we might be tempted to anger, we need to let it go. We must forgive others. We must come together in the unity that we have in Jesus Christ and be reconciled. I would even go so far as to say, if you're not willing to be reconciled with someone, then you are doing Satan's work in God's church. That's how important that reconciliation is. And then we see also that we must not only speak as a renewed person, And think as a renewed person, but also act as a renewed person. Look at verse 28. The renewed person acts without selfishness and specifically without stealing. He said, let the thief no longer steal. No one is completely free from the temptation, I think, to steal. And oftentimes, kids, you might be tempted to go through a phase in your life where you think it's really a fun thing to steal things from other people. 
to take things from other, that belong to other people. But that's not honoring to the Lord. And even adults can do the same. You know, we can take software and use it that we don't have a license to. We can pirate music or videos that don't belong to us. Uh, employers can be tempted to not pay a fair wage. Employees sometimes feel that they're being taken advantage of, and so they can rationalize doing personal work on company time. We can pad our expense report. We can report hours that we didn't really work. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways that we can steal from others. But Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor or let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. You see, to work shows that we're no longer uh, leeching off of the community, but are rather supporting and contributing to the community. And we do that in the church all the time, do we not? I mean, think about mercy funds. There are those who give to the mercy fund so that those in our congregation or in the community that have need, we're able to step up and help them when they, they need that help. Or what about missionaries? Missionaries couldn't just leave everything and move overseas and live there if there weren't those who, who took that which the Lord had given them because of their work and they gave that for the good of the community. Or what about kids who come to church to hear about Jesus? You know, there are those who give and who work so that that can happen. Uh, we work so that we might have the ministry of giving to others. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that is a good general rule of thumb just in terms of your personal finances. We oftentimes, I hear people say, well, I work hard for that money. It's mine. And I want to say to them, well, I don't doubt that you work hard, but actually that money is yours because God has given it to you. And he has given that to you for a reason. And he tells us here, one of the reasons he gives us things is not only to spend it upon ourselves, but so that we might use it for others as well and uh, have that ministry to them. So what, what is the end? Why, why, why do we do these things? The purpose of this exhortation to live in Christ and the purpose of these examples of what it looks like to live in Christ is really twofold. You see it in verse 30, we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but also we are to be an example to the community. Paul's been giving us positive examples really hear of what it means to not only walk in holiness, but to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we really don't have any excuse to, to know how we ought to live. But when our relationship with others is disrupted, then our relationship with God is disrupted. Those two things are tied closely together. And I see Christians so often being bitter towards their brothers or sisters in Christ or, or not being reconciled. And they really don't understand that that affects their relationship with God. And so uh, Christians, when we participate in that old selfish behavior, we grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He is a person. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit sees Christians living like those who are given over to the futility of their thinking with their hardened hearts, he's grieved. When Christians harbor bitterness and anger and slander, each other's good name, along with speaking malice, as it says in verse um, 32, the Holy Spirit is saddened. It is the same Holy Spirit that gives gifts to the church to build up the church for unity and maturity. But if we live as if the work of the Holy Spirit means nothing, then he is grieved. For the work of the Holy Spirit to take us for the work of the Holy Spirit is to take us from the beginning of our faith to glory. And so, brothers and sisters, it is God in Christ 
who has forgiven us. And so we are to forgive one another. And we are to do that for his glory. Can we who have been forgiven so much not forgive the relatively small things done to other people? You know, we all know the parable that Jesus told of the man who owed a small debt and the king forgave him or uh, owed a large debt, uh, an enormous debt, and the king forgave him. And then he went out and found a friend who owed him just a little bit of money. And he told that friend, I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay. And the king heard about it and he came back and he said, look, I forgave you this big debt. Could you not forgive others? And he said, I'm going to not only take you, but your family and everything and throw you in jail until you can pay it back, which it was a debt so large he could never pay back. And Jesus said, if we cannot forgive, then we have not been forgiven. Because the truth is, is that if God has worked in our hearts and he has forgiven us and he has set us free and he has made us new creatures in Christ, we cannot help but to forgive others. As we are here on this Lord's Day, I know that oftentimes Sundays are the hardest days of the week. I think Satan works overtime. You know, maybe with this being Mother's Day, that might even make it more challenging. I don't know. But there may have been words that were spoken this morning. There may have been things that have done. And you're thinking, I need to talk to my husband. Or I need to talk to my brother and sister. Or, you know what, I wasn't really, I was pretty rude to my neighbor when I pulled out of the driveway because I was late for church and I cut him off. I might need to go back to them and I might just need to ask for their forgiveness. But it also may be that you're here today and you are a person who you have neglected the renewal of the spirit of the mind. And you've been a person that you say, but well, Pastor Rick, you know, other than church, man, I, I really haven't even cracked my Bible for a week, two weeks, a month, whatever. I, I've not given myself to that. I've lived like that TV character that was living under that drug and I just thought, I'm okay. Nothing wrong with me. And not really taking advantage of the wonderful grace that God has given me through His Word and the work of His Spirit. But know that God is good to us. Let me read, if I could, just in closing, uh, Colossians 3. This just is a great summation of Paul's teaching here. If you want, you can open your Bibles if you want to Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Just follow as I, I read this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonish one, an, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us bow and meditate upon God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word this morning and just the reminder that the things that we have read about this morning are part of that life that you have given to us. And Lord, we come this morning and we rejoice in the ways that we have seen the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Lord, we have seen you work in our lives through your word and we give you praise. But Lord, we also recognize that there are ways that we have lived as, as the old man. But we thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation, but there is forgiveness. And we, we come to you, Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness for the things that we have done and committed against you. And we pray that you would give us strength this week. And Lord, as we rise each day and Satan tempts us with the things that we need to get done this day, uh, God, give us strength to, to pull away and to stop and, and to reflect to be renewed, God, in, in the spirit of our minds. And Lord, we pray that each day we would draw from your strength. Lord, that we would rest in your grace. Lord, that we would delight in the mercy that you show us, that you might be glorified and honored. And please, God, I pray that you would strengthen us as a body as you work through this to draw us closer to, to one another and to love one another. We thank you, God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.